1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Secularism channel on the New Books Network. I'm Benjamin Rossi, the co-host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Greg Dawes about his book, Galileo and the Conflict Between Religion and Science, which was first published in 2016 by Rutledge Press and appeared in paperback in 2018. Dawes holds a joint appointment as associate professor in the philosophy and theology and religion departments in the University of Otago in New Zealand. Greg Dawes, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Benjamin. Greg, I wonder if you
1: could start the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in this fascinating topic.
2: Yeah, um, well, my background is quite complex because I started off not in philosophy, but in theology. So I have an interest in the history of Christianity, of course, and a little bit of background when it comes to understanding, say, the Galileo affair. And in fact, my first PhD was in in biblical studies, working on topics in New Testament studies. And that got me interested in the relationship between religious belief and, I guess, critical thought, the kind of critical thinking that came out of what we call the Enlightenment or the Scientific Revolution, the changes that occurred in the 17th century, because they made people take a very different view of the Bible as well as of the natural world. Historians started approaching the Bible like any other book and studying it using the same methods of criticism as any other book. And that was the tradition of biblical studies in which I was trained. And, of course, this gave rise to tensions between the study of the Bible in a religious context, where you're taking it as, in some sense, the Word of God, and the study of the Bible as a document of human history. So that's really what first got me into these questions. And then of course, fairly naturally, I moved into, once I moved into philosophy, thinking more about the relationship between natural science and religion, where analogous tensions and and conflicts arise.
1: Much has been written about the relationship between religion and science, as well as the Galileo trials. In fact, at the toward the beginning of the book, um, you kind of give an overview of the different positions that various writers have staked out on that relationship. Um, could you tell us a bit about the history of thinking about the relationship between religion and science and um, locate yourself in that uh, in that dialogue or debate?
2: Yes, I think it's very difficult to discuss religion and science in general terms. In fact, I think it's very misleading to try to discuss religion and science in different terms. I mean, people commonly talk about differences between, say, a conflict or warfare view of religion and science, where the two are thought of as, in some sense, in conflict. And I suppose I am endorsing a kind of a conflict view, but along one dimension of the religion-science relation, some people think religion and science are quite independent. Stephen Jay Gould, the evolutionary biologist, famously put forward a view he called NOMA, or non-overlapping magisteria, where magisteria are teaching authorities, where religion deals with ethics and science deals with matters of fact. I don't think that really works, but it's an interesting view, where it tries to keep the two quite independent rather than seeing them in conflict. Other people think that religion and science can be somehow in dialogue, each shedding light upon the other. The problem with all these views is that both religion and science are complex realities. So, for one thing, much of the discussion has been largely about Christianity. And, in fact, my own book falls into that category. I'm largely discussing Christianity, or any religion that relies on the idea of a divine revelation, so maybe Judaism and Islam as well, and perhaps some others. But of course, if you take a religion like Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism, then its relationship with science will be very different, because it makes very different kinds of claims. So to talk about religion as one thing is very misleading. But also the religion-science relation itself has a whole lot of dimensions, and I talk about those briefly in the book too where you might locate a conflict or, or dialogue for that matter. Do you think of religion and science as bodies of doctrine, propositions about the world? Do you think of them as communities or practitioners? Do you think of them in terms of their characteristic modes of thought? Or do you think of them as I've tried to do in this book in terms of the, the differing epistemic norms, I'm calling it, the different, the different principles that are employed when dealing with knowledge claims, particularly when they come into apparent conflict. So along each of those, say, four dimensions, community, modes of thought, bodies of doctrine, epistemic norms, and there could be others as well, along each of those dimensions you can have different kinds of relation between religion and science. So I think general statements about religion and science are pretty much, well, they're pretty unhelpful generally because they fail to make those distinctions.
1: Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, I I also think it's important that you um, are focusing on institutional epistemic norms, is that correct?
2: Yes, yes, I am. Because it seems to me that while philosophers of science have become very conscious in recent decades of the communal dimension of, of science, that science works very well, because it's a collective enterprise. It's not so much that individuals sitting down using particular techniques have a privileged access to the world. It's that within a community of scientists, claims are checked and double-checked and tested and so on. But that's a collective endeavor. So even if a particular scientist is dogmatic, other people will question his or her claims. And that's that collective enterprise is what makes science you know, very good at what it does. On the whole, now religion, of course, also a collective enterprise. That no one belongs to a religion. No, well, religions are something you join. They're something you practice along with other people, and so religious communities are also governed by certain norms of behaviour. And it's really this contrasting norms of behaviour between religious communities and scientific communities that that interests me here. And how
1: does the Galileo Affair um, illustrate that conflict on the level of institutional epistemic norms?
2: Well, the Galileo Affair is, of course, it occurs at a really key point in the development of modern science. It's, It's the early 17th century, Galileo is in many ways in terms of the kind of science being done a foundational figure. He's the first to think about the world in strictly mathematical terms. But also, interestingly enough, he belongs to one of the earliest scientific, earliest modern scientific societies, the Academia dei Linci, the Academy of the Lynxes, which was set up in Italy about this time and which brought together outside of the universities, Galileo also taught in universities for a time, but this society brought, side, outside, brought together outside of the universities people interested in investigating the natural world. And so the Royal Society was set up in 1665, shortly afterwards. The French Society of Science was set up at about the same time. So about this time you get these societies being established devoted to the study of the natural world outside of other institutional contexts. So a kind of specialised society set up for this purpose. And I think this has been very important for the, the history of, of the sciences
1: Okay, interesting, yeah. Um, you argue that the Galileo controversy, or at least this, this is how I interpreted the argument, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it revolved around disagreement over both the scope of biblical authority and how apparent conflicts between science and scripture should be resolved. Um, could you tell us a little more about your view on this?
2: Yes. No. The first issue on the scope of biblical authority was clearly a very important one because Cardinal Bellarmine, who was head of the Inquisition at the time of Galileo's first encounter with the church, Cardinal Bellarmine had a rather strict view of the authority of Scripture. He recognized that not everything that Scripture happens to talk about is essential for salvation. So Scripture mentions lots of things. You know, It mentions that... You know, some Old Testament character had a certain number of children, or whatever, and it's not a matter which you need to know in order to be saved, or that the location of such a a people was somewhere in the Middle East. Again, you don't need to know this in order to be saved. On the other hand, Cardinal Bellarmine held that although not all these matters were necessary for salvation, by the very fact the Scriptures asserts them. They must be believed because Scripture is authored by the Holy Spirit, authored ultimately by God himself. So Bellarmine had this very expansive view of biblical authority whereby actually anything the Bible says has to be taken as as essential, as a matter of belief. It's a matter you must accept, even if you didn't need to accept it in order to be saved. Galileo takes the first step along the path that leads to Stephen Jay Gould's independence principle, Galileo, at least at times, seems to be suggesting that, well, there are matters which are important for salvation, clearly we need to believe those, but there are other matters scripture asserts, like matters to do with astronomy, which it really doesn't matter, and in these matters we're free to to question biblical authority. Now, Galileo doesn't quite come out and say this, but he comes very close to saying it, and this is a view which the... um, the Inquisition, of course, found quite unacceptable. So that's the first thing, the scope of authority. What matters for within the scope of what one needs to believe if you, are a, if you accept the authority of the Bible? Then the other matter, of course, is the question of what you do when there are apparent conflicts. And I'm saying apparent conflicts because, of course, if you are a believer, the conflicts can be only apparent because, to use a metaphor very popular at this period, and in the Middle Ages, God has written two books. He's written the book of Scripture, and he's written the book of nature. And since both have God as their author, they can't ultimately contradict each other. So any conflict must be apparent. But the question then is, when do you give priority to Scripture and what it seems to be saying? And when do you give priority to science? And if you give priority to science, how do you deal with the apparent conflict with Scripture? So that's the issue of just how do you manage these conflicts? And that's a very old discussion that goes right back to St. Augustine in the fifth century.
1: And some of it revolves around this idea of giving certain demonstrations of scientific claims or deductive proofs, I suppose, of, of scientific claims. Could you tell, I mean, and what interested me was that you write that Galileo actually hoped to be able to give a certain demonstration of his, of, um, the Copernican claims, um, which is something that, of, of course, modern science has—an uh, ambition modern science has rejected.
2: Yes. Now, this again makes Galileo a very pivotal figure in the in the history, because in many ways, what Galileo says about science is very traditional. It's very Aristotelian, in a sense, although he doesn't like Aristotelians, but. The Aristotelian idealist science was a deductive science where you started with premises nobody could reasonably question, and by a kind of insight you chose the right premises and arrived at a conclusion which was necessitated, which was made necessary by those premises. So you arrived at a kind of a, a certain knowledge or as close to certain knowledge as one could hope to attain. Now, medieval natural philosophers because they weren't called scientists then. Natural philosophers is the old name for a scientist. Medieval natural philosophers were well aware that in reality it was difficult to attain this kind of certainty, but it was still a kind of ideal of science. And Galileo, because he's employing mathematical demonstrations, sometimes likes to think that he can arrive at something like this kind of certainty, because a mathematical proof will give you this kind of certainty. What Galileo means by mathematics is really what we call geometry, because that was the most developed form of mathematics in his day. So many of his works, give, or his later works in particular, give quite elaborate geometrical proofs of some fact about the natural world. And these two have led him to believe that maybe one could arrive at certain knowledge. In any case, the Church, holding to this traditional view of certain knowledge, had long said since about the time of St. Augustine that, look, if you had some fact about the world which you could prove beyond reasonable doubt and it apparently conflicted with what Scripture said, then you need to reinterpret Scripture. You can't take what Scripture says at face value. And there's a nice example in the... St. Augustine, right back in the 5th century, writes about the book of Genesis, chapter 1. And he says, well, look... At the beginning of God's creating the world, God creates light. But wait a minute. God later creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Now the light we know comes from the sun and the moon and the stars. So there seems to be a conflict here between what we know from ordinary experience and observation. that light comes from the sun and the moon. Well, it's the sun and the stars. But... But here we have scripture saying that God created light before he created the sun and the stars. So there's an apparent conflict or a difficulty. And Augustine reinterprets the word light in the opening verses of Genesis so that it can mean, for example, a kind of spiritual illumination, not quite light in its literal sense. And that's a very typical move. You come across a clear conflict. You're quite certain about what the science says or what ordinary Observation of the world will tell you, and therefore you need to reinterpret scripture. There's nothing very radical about that. The problem Galileo had was that he couldn't produce a knockdown proof of the Copernican theory. He wished he could, he aimed to do so, but in the end he couldn't. Now, many of us today would say, well, that's fine, because most we can hope for is highly probable knowledge in science. But of course, on the church's principles, highly probable knowledge wasn't enough. You had to have certain knowledge in order to force you to abandon the literal sense of the Bible. So this is put Galileo in this no win situation. He wanted to defend the Copernican view. He realized he couldn't produce knockdown proof, but without knockdown proof he couldn't insist, as it were, that the church ought to reinterpret scripture.
0: That's Shopify.com/system.
1: And I believe that you actually argue that um, the Catholic Church, as well as other Christian denominations, still hone substantially to that principle, even up to the present day. I think it's in a in a, a section you call "Has anything changed?"
2: Yes, this was slightly provocative, but I did do a I looked. Carefully at what the Second Vatican Council had said in nineteen sixty five about about the interpretation of scripture, and it seemed to me that the even the Second Vatican Council in nineteen sixty five which is a great reforming council of modern Catholicism, even that hadn't actually broken with this principle that it's still lurking there in the background and so now, in practice of course, and this may be why when I think it was in 1996, Pope John Paul II endorsed evolutionary theory in a famous speech he gave to the Pontifical Academy of Science in Rome. When John Paul II talked about Darwinian evolutionary theory, he made the point of saying that it's no longer simply a theory, by which I think he was trying to say that it's now got to the point where, if not certain, it's certain enough that we ought to reinterpret scripture, even though scripture might seem to contradict it. So that was a very interesting move. I think the Pope there was trying to suggest we can accept Darwin's story, at least about the evolution of the human body, because there are qualifications there, but we can accept Darwin's story at least about the evolution of the human body, even though it appears to contradict scripture, but he was doing it without abandoning those, those old principles.
1: Right. So having explained uh, or kind of articulated the principles and shown how they are used in the Galileo controversy. You then set out to kind of to explain or explain why the the Church or Christi- Christianity in general or maybe the monotheistic religions um, uh, accept these kinds of principles. And I think your your main claim here is that um, religion, traditional religion, let's say, um, is epistemologically dualist and this explains its peculiar institutional attitude uh to knowledge um could you explain what you mean by that
2: yes yes i can this is something that really only occurred to me in quite recent times as i was doing research for this for this book but that a key point here is the relationship between faith and reason now There is a long tradition within Christianity. I suspect you have parallel traditions within at least Judaism and Islam, and maybe elsewhere, but certainly within Christianity, there's a long tradition of regarding religious faith as an independent source of knowledge, that somehow you know this because it is revealed by God, and you know this independently of any reasons that you might offer in support of it. Now, this is a very tricky position to hold for reasons we might come back to, but if you do hold this view that what you know by faith, you know independently of the exercise of our ordinary reasoning powers, then you have got a kind of epistemological dualism, to use an ugly phrase. You've got a dualism about the sources of knowledge. You have ordinary human reason, of which, of course, science is simply a particular and developed form and you have what you know by the act of faith, by grasping a divine revelation by faith. And so that makes for yeah, this view of two sources of knowledge. This, of course, sets up the possibility of a conflict, because if you've got two sources of knowledge, they may end up saying conflicting things, and that's why a conflict is always possible while you have this, this epistemological dualism this idea that faith is a source of knowledge independent of reason.
1: Yes. And you're, you're very clear that, um, there have been many thinkers who have actually, um, held the traditional claims, um, about, uh, the traditional faith claims, belief in God and so forth. But, um, you, you want to say that these thinkers, um, Diverged in critical ways from the traditional religious dualism, epistemological dualism, and I'm thinking here in particular of someone like John Locke, um, who makes an interesting appearance in your book. Could you could you say a little more about John Locke and and the tradition that he represents?
2: Yes, now Locke I think is is wonderful. Um, I mean, Locke you'd expect he's a very important philosopher, whatever. But in the um, fourth section of of his of his big work on human understanding Locke has a discussion of of faith and reason and it's very very interesting because he presents initially the traditional view that faith is what we know by a kind of knowledge by testimony we know something on the testimony of God we know it because God has revealed it, and of course if we had such knowledge it would be the most certain form of knowledge because God can neither deceive nor be deceived. And reason is what we know by our ordinary capacities, by observation, because Locke is an empiricist, of course, and by reflection of what we have observed. Now, Locke then goes on to say, however, that we need reason to believe that something is a divine revelation and that we have understood it correctly. Now, to many philosophers, this will just seem self-evident, But it was actually a significant break with the tradition, because Locke goes on developing this idea to say that, well, this means, of course, that in the end, faith has collapsed into reason. We may believe that something is revealed by God, but we do this only because, or we should do this, only because we have reasons to believe that this is a divine revelation, and, of course, that we have understood it correctly. And in a way, Locke bases his famous works on, on tole- religious toleration on this principle because although Locke is quite convinced that we have demonstrative proof there is a God, for better or for worse, he recognises that other claims about what God has revealed are never going to reach certainty because they're always backed up by probabilistic reasoning. And for that reason, we should be, we, we should be tolerant of, of differences in, in this respect. So this is a very important break with the tradition, the kind of collapse of faith into reason, which occurs in the work of, of John Locke.
1: And um ultimately I think you want to give an assessment of the um the attitude uh toward knowledge that you uh that you discern in the traditional religion. Um and and you want to Present a certain kind of objection to it that you say hasn't really been adequately answered. Um, Could you say a little bit about that assessment?
2: Well, it seems to me that that the problem faced by the problem outlined by Locke is still a very very significant one. That what's the alternative to the Locke route to the route that Locke takes? the route he takes is to say, look, we can we can produce arguments in support of the authority of the Bible, for example. And Locke thinks one can. He thinks that it's reasonable to believe in Christianity. There are reasons to accept the Christian revelation. But then, of course, your reasons are only ever going to be probabilistic. Yeah, there's some degree of probability. We see this famously in the work of someone like Richard Swinburne, the philosopher of religion who produces probabilistic arguments in support not just of the existence of God, but of the of the um, authority of of the Christian revelation. Okay, that's fine. If you want to go that route, you can go that route. You can produce more or less persuasive arguments, but you're not going to have the kind of certainty that many religious people seem to to long for. If you go, so the only alternative is to somehow try to bootstrap the act of faith, to pull itself up by its own bootstraps, as it were, to make it what people call self-authenticating. And we see this in the work of another philosopher of religion like William Lane Craig, who although he produces apologetic arguments in defence of the Christian faith, when he's writing for his fellow Christians, he makes it very clear that, as he puts it, we know Christianity is true not because of any arguments we can produce in its support, but because of what he calls the self-authenticating witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now, this seems to me to be a a very difficult position to hold because it just looks fatally question-begging. How do you know this is the Holy Spirit who's assuring you of this? How do you know your sense of certainty isn't the result of factors which are quite other than divine? So... This just looks like thumping the table rather than offering an argument, to be honest. And actually, this is what Locke says as well. Locke speaks very critically of those whom he calls enthusiasts. Enthusiasm, interestingly, was a 17th century term quite close in its connotations to what we would describe as fundamentalism. People who claimed to be in a position of divine revelation, but couldn't give a reasoned account of why they held these things to be true. So I think the alternative is, is really just a kind of table thumping, dogmatic Christian begging assertion. And that seems to me to be unworthy of a philosopher.
1: So having laid out your view about the conflict at the level of institutional epistemic norms between, uh, science, broadly speaking, and religion, um, you consider two objections to your thesis, right? The first one is that um, roughly religious faith is not unique in accepting propositions uncritically and without evidence. Um, and here you, you talk a lot about uh, uh, the notion of a hinge belief. Um, could you say more about this idea?
2: Yes. Now, this is a a big topic, of course, and a a very difficult one, because the idea of a hinge belief comes from the work of, of Wittgenstein and some of his followers, who make the point that, look, our ordinary knowledge of the world occurs against the background of taken for granted beliefs. So each morning when I get up, I don't think about whether I have reason to believe that the floor is going to support my feet. When I walk out the door, I don't worry about whether I have reason to believe that the ground is not going to open up and swallow me. I assume that the world is more than five minutes old. It is possible that the world was created five minutes ago, complete with false memories and fossils in the ground, but actually this is not an idea anyone takes seriously. So there are things we all take for granted as the sort of unacknowledged Uncriticized background for all our beliefs. And I think that's true. I think, however, this is very different from the religious act of faith. For one thing, hinge beliefs tend to be the sort of beliefs that we need to have in order to function at all. So the belief that other people have minds, for example, it may be that other people are all zombies that only appear to have inner in life. They don't have an inner life at, at all. It may be that I am the only person who has a mind. But actually if we took this belief seriously we'd probably go crazy. So there are beliefs that we take for granted because in a sense there doesn't seem to be any alternative. There are other hinge beliefs that we actually do criticize at times. I mean a lot of philosophy has consisted in in asking Asking these questions which other people think are crazy, you know, is there an external world, as it were? Is there a world outside of my sense perceptions? Or if that's a bad question, why is it a bad question? So it seems to me that that the idea of a hinged belief or the idea of a belief that we take for granted, it's true that there are many beliefs we take for granted in everyday life. It is true that some of them we probably can't question without without abandoning the whole enterprise of thinking. We must hold to some principles of rational thought in order to think rationally. And any defence we provide of those principles is likely to employ them, so there's an inevitable circularity there. All of this is true, but I think when people try and draw parallels between this and a freely chosen religious faith, the parallels just seem to me to be to be false. So I think... The idea that somehow religious faith is just another species of hinge belief doesn't quite work because it has some very different characteristics.
1: The second objection that you consider um, is that science itself uh, functions as a kind of religion. Um, could you tell us about that objection and how you respond to it?
2: Yes. Well, of course, this is this raises some very interesting questions in the in the philosophy and sociology of science, in a way you can think of it as going back to the work of Thomas Kuhn in his famous book on scientific revolutions. Kuhn famously or notoriously argues that the shift from one paradigm, from one way of looking at the world, such as Ptolemaic astronomy, to another paradigm, another way of looking at the world like Ptolemaic, like Copernican astronomy, is kind of like a conversion experience. And it's not so much that there are rational considerations which lead you to hold the second view, it's that you have the sort of sudden flash of insight and you simply convert from one to the other. Now, I think many philosophers of science would argue that Kuhn badly overstates the case, that there were good reasons to hold the Copernican view, even in uh, 1543 when it was proposed. But nonetheless, that sort of set the cat among the pigeons by suggesting that aspects of scientific belief were akin to, to religious belief Paul um, Feyerabend of course <laughs> took a very radical view of this even suggesting at one point that you know parents should be able to withdraw their children from science lessons in school if they're allowed to withdraw their children from religion classes because science is akin to another religion well again this was Feyerabend being delightfully provocative but I think I think overstating the case um, Nonetheless, of course, it's true that the scientific community can exhibit behavior which is not very different from that of a religious community. Scientists can hold certain beliefs to be to be sacred and almost sacred or sacred in the sense of unquestionable and react very badly when people question them. I think of the reaction to oh, the book by Thomas Nagel, which questioned aspects of evolutionary theory as it is customarily interpreted quite recently, that elicited some very strong reactions from the scientific community as though some sacred belief were being challenged. Now, on the other hand, I think I would want to say that if scientists can sometimes act like an intolerant church, and undoubtedly the scientific community can, This actually runs contrary to the norms of science that, and I take the Velikovsky affair, when Emmanuel Velikovsky put forward his ideas about the Earth having been, suffered catastrophic events in the past as a result of a close pass by a comet which became the planet Venus, are quite ideas from left field, as it were. At first he was vigorously attacked, but at the end of the day he was given a hearing within the scientific community And people took his ideas seriously enough to to respond to them and to offer arguments. So I think that although, yes, the scientific community can act like an intolerant religious community, this is a betrayal of its ideals. Whereas within religious communities that hold to this idea of an authoritative divine revelation, the religious ideal is to safeguard that at all costs. So it seems to me that the epistemic norms again are different, even if at times scientists betray their own epistemic norms.
1: You talk about, and I, I think we've already touched on it a bit, but um, a tradition of kind of critical theology, uh, also uh, a natural theology, um, that developed over time and still exists alongside mainstream theology, at times even eclipsing Mainstream theology, maybe in the 19th century. Um, Given your basic thesis about the irreconcilable epistemological stances of religion and science or religion and reason, how do you account for this critical tradition?
2: I think it's always been the case that people who hold to, we see this in the work of Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. People who hold to religious beliefs by faith, who have made this commitment in faith, which provides them, they believe, with a certain a certainty about what God has revealed. If they're thoughtful people, they'll also want to put forward arguments, both to reassure themselves that their commitment is not counter to reason, but also to help persuade others. And hence the famous arguments for the existence of God, the tradition of Excuse me, of natural theology, which is what we can know about God, leaving aside divine revelation. That's what natural theology is about. So William Paley famously in the 19th century was one of the great writers in natural theology, wrote about the complexity of the natural world and how this provided arguments from design for the existence of God. Actually, Charles Darwin loved paley's work apparently he described it as the only worthwhile thing he had ever read at at cambridge when he was there at cambridge university because paley provides a great detail about the natu- about living things and their complexity the very thing that darwin was to offer a non religious explanation of even richard dawkins kind of likes paley because he says at one point richard dawkins says how oh, paley would have loved the electron microscope because it would have given him yet more apparent evidence for the existence of a god but of course Dawkins goes on to say that Darwin's theory has now offered a a non-religious explanation of these phenomena so yeah the the tradition of natural theology is an interesting one but i think what philosophers need to appreciate perhaps more than many do is that it's sometimes window dressing it's sometimes and william lane craig to his credit makes this quite clear it's sometimes not. It's not what's actually doing the work here. What's actually doing the work here is the idea of faith as an independent source of knowledge, offering you a certainty that that reason could never provide.
1: Yeah, and I, I think I, I'd like to go back uh, for a moment and and talk about a little bit about your uh, discussion of the nature of faith because I found that quite interesting. Could you could you say what? Um what your view about faith is, or the well, I would say it's not your view, but the view you're kind trying to reconstruct
2: well, the view I'm trying to reconstruct it's it's the view that faith can be thought of as an act of acceptance, that you are you are accepting a certain set of propositions. now, faith involves a lot more than propositional knowledge. You can think of faith having an affective dimension. There's a dimension of an experienced relationship with the divine. That's clearly very important. You can think of faith having as a a communal and ritual dimension. It has many dimensions. But if you focus on the kind of cognitive dimension of faith, faith, it seems to me, does involve a kind of propositional attitude. You're accepting certain propositions, and you're accepting them as divinely revealed. What's interesting is that on this traditional view, you're accepting them as divinely revealed on the authority of God. You accept what God has revealed because God has revealed it. But in order to make sense of this, you seem to end up in a kind of tight circularity. How do you know God has revealed it? Because God has told me that God has revealed it. But this doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere. I remember coming across this idea very early in my study of theology and thinking, "Nah, no, nah, this doesn't work. It clearly doesn't work, and just ignored it. And it was only quite in recent years that I came to realise that actually this was an important part of the theological tradition in which I had studied, which because it had seemed so implausible or so untenable, I tended to set aside. So one of the things I've done in the book is to try and set out this idea more clearly in order to understand it.
1: Well, Greg, um, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now?
2: Yes. Well, I'm happy to say that I was asked some months ago to write a small book. It's quite small, smaller than this one, uh, for a series published by Cambridge University Press, the Cambridge Elements Series on religion and science. And I'm planning to call it Science and Religion Beyond Ethnocentrism, because One of my concerns has been that although what I've been talking about I think is perfectly reasonable (laughs) and defensible, it does apply only to one religion and to one type of science. So one of the things I've tried to do in this new book or I'm trying to do is to look at how science and knowledge of the natural world have been related across different cultures, different kinds of cultures in different periods of human history. So, for example, if you look at small-scale societies, what we used to call tribal societies, many of which were very successful. They survived and flourished hunter-gatherer societies, flourished for long periods of time. And these people often had very detailed, very elaborate knowledge of the natural world. It wasn't science, and it was knowledge often tied up with mythic beliefs about the origins of things. So it's the kind of knowledge in which science and religion are uh, intertwined in interesting ways, but quite different from the way in which we think of as science and religion. So how do how does what we might think of as religion and knowledge of the natural world, inter- how do these relate to one another in small-scale, say, hunter-gatherer societies? So I'm reading a lot of anthropology to understand that. But also in a place like ancient China. Ancient China developed what I'm going to call an integral cosmology in which Descriptive, explanatory, moral and ethical, even aesthetic concerns are all bound up together. So the cosmology of ancient China, with principles like yin and yang and the qi underlying all things, the substance underlying all things, and the five elements which explain change and interpret change in the natural world, this elaborate cosmology that underlies, for example, traditional Chinese medicine, it's a very different way of thinking about the relationship of offers a very different way of thinking about the relationship of science and religion what role does heaven for example tian play in chinese cosmology it's kind of a divine principle but it's not quite so it seems to me that once we broaden our intellectual horizons and our cultural horizons we see that the way in which science and religion have interacted in the context i've been writing about in the galileo book is only one of many. And a broader view of human history and culture will give us different ways in which knowledge of the natural world and what's thought to be knowledge of the divine have been seen as connecting with one another. So it's a broader picture that I'm very interested in exploring at the present time.
1: That sounds fascinating. Well, Greg, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: It's been a pleasure and I hope it's of interest. Uh, These are certainly great questions to explore and thank you very much for the opportunity.